Take your Bible with me this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17. If you're using our Pew Bible, it is on page 822. And if you do not have a, a, a Bible at all, please, there are white Bibles on the back table. Those are our gift to you if you do not have a Bible. But let me just say before I begin um, that I hope, I hope that the preaching portion of our services really are, are, a, are a highlight for your week. Uh, not because of who is speaking, um, whether it's myself or anybody else, not because of who is speaking, but because any time that God's Word is opened, it is a very significant time. It is a, a time that deserves our reverence. When you're home uh, and you're reading your Bible, I hope it is not cavalier for you to read your Bible. I, I totally admit it's very easy for me to sit in my comfortable chair next to my comfortable AC that's blowing, got the fan going overhead. It's just this beautiful, conditioned room, but it's not quiet. And it's very easy for me to just sit there and open up God's Word and just pound out a couple chapters and Nora's running around and the dog's licking my feet and whatever else. But any time that God's Word is open, it is a very special time. And so I hope that you consider it to be so, particularly within our worship services. That when we read a, even a full chapter in, in, in Paul's gospel, that we're not thinking, man, why, why are we spending so much time reading God's word? And it's kind of contrary to being a Christian, it seems. Like, why are we reading so much of God's word? But it's so important. And then as we look at different passages and we walk through Matthew, again, we want to highlight God's word more than anything. We want our services to be known as being filled with God's word. If something should be said of our church, it should be, this is the kind of church, their Bibles are open. That's what we want. So, Matthew chapter 17, look there with me, beginning in verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, and kneeling before him said, Lord... Have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And so this text this morning comes immediately upon the heels of what we looked at last week in the transfiguration. If you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who we call the synoptic gospels, the synoptic authors. If you look, it is for all of them, transfiguration and then this healing of this epileptic, this boy who had epilepsy. So it's right on the heels of the transfiguration of Jesus. And it's even possible that the disciples were, were trying to pull the demon out of this boy at the same exact time as the transfiguration was going on. If not, it was very close on the heels of it. So remember last week as the, the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus and his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, they walk up that mountain and, and they behold that glory and then right below the nine other disciples are trying to cast the demon out of this boy. In fact, 
This is what is depicted in Raphael's piece of art here called the Transfiguration. Where you have the, the, the Transfiguration happening up top. You see a depiction of Jesus with Moses and Elijah and several disciples there. But then you see below that there's, there's this other scene. And that's what's going on in, in, as Raphael's painting. That says the Transfiguration there. And then below it, it is this boy who has epilepsy who is being brought before the disciples. And so Raphael, who is this guy, is a self-portrait. Imagine painting yourself. This is a self-portrait. Not to be confused with this guy, Raphael. But this guy, Raphael, um, painted this great picture, this, this transfiguration. And if you look closely at this bottom where this boy, right here on the right, in that little blue or whatever color that is, his eyes are so severely uh, cross-eyed, indicating that this is the boy who has ep- epilepsy. This is the boy who's undergoing this kind of, 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 of trauma. So, but also at the bottom you see, there's this crowd. There are far more than the other disciples, but supposedly there's supposed to be the nine disciples there, the other ones, and then there's part of the crowds that are all there with this boy. And then you see right behind the boy is supposedly his father who is bringing him to Jesus. But I think, if anything, this piece of art helps us to at least see what the authors are trying to get across. If it didn't happen at the same exact time, it was at least very close. Transfiguration. Boy with epilepsy that needs to be healed. And I I think also what we can pull from this, what can be conveyed is that in, in the transfiguration, it's just beautiful and this glorious event where the, the face of, of Christ is just glory and, and, and his clothes are dazzling and there's this big bright cloud and the voice of God comes out of this cloud and this great glorious event and a wonderful thing for those three disciples to behold but then what was going on underneath what was going on in the real world was it was still horrific it was glorious there on the Mount of Transfiguration but it was still the real world below It was still a struggle. It was still a battle. There were still many problems that were going on. Even the demonic oppression, possession that is going on here. So those nine disciples, they're they're trying to cast out this demon out of this boy. And they're fighting a battle that quite truthfully, as we looked at our passage when we read it, they could not win over the demon. But I want you to consider with me at least what the initial problem was that we find in the text. Consider with me the dilemma that Jesus walks into. Like we've seen with with other scenarios, like with with a woman who had the daughter who had uh, a demon as well. Here is a man who approaches Jesus and begs him for mercy. Look in verse 15 again. Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into a fire, and often into water. And so this boy has... Epilepsy. So if you don't know, epilepsy is, is really a, a, a disorder that causes these erratic and unpredictable uh, seizures, right? So it's clear within this text that, that this boy, though, is not simply an epileptic, but that his epilepsy is tied to the fact that he is possessed by a demon. And so the, the father tells Jesus that, that this boy, he often falls into the water. He often falls into flames. In fact, Mark's gospel also tells us that this boy was unable to speak. He was a mute. It says that he would foam at the mouth 
because of this demon that was in him. He would grind his teeth. This boy was quite truly experiencing hell on earth with being thrown into the flames and being forced to gnash his teeth. With all of this trauma, you can imagine this boy would have been incredibly disfigured. He would have been far more than severely cross-eyed, like in that picture. He would have had the evidence of burns all over his body. I mean, how heartbreaking when you see even an adult that has evidence of severe trauma on their skin. But how much more does our heart go out when we see a child or a teenager that has obvious trauma, has experienced horrific things? When I was a teenager, we would go to the same camp every year. And at least a couple times, um, there was this boy who would go there that I presume was in a house fire. And again, he was a teenager. And he had burns, uh, the scars of the burns and and, and disfigurement as a result of being in uh, the fire. Really, over 90% of his body had been burned. And I can vividly remember this young guy who who was forced, as a result of what had happened to him when he was a baby, forced to live differently than everybody else, the average teenage boy. And I wonder that if this boy brought to Jesus on this day looked a little bit like that teenage boy that I went to camp with, with the scars that that demonstrated that he had undergone torturous flames, scars from being cast to the ground by this demon consistently dealing with the effects of those violent seizures and writhing on the ground and falling into pools of water and gasping for air as he's in the water and this demon just raging through his body. What a horrific sight that this boy probably was that nobody would have wanted to deal with. Yet here is his father. He's, he's the voice of his son. Like any of us would be the voice for our children. He comes to the only one who can help and he begs Jesus for mercy. Jesus certainly knows something about the relationship between a father and a son. He is the son of God. God is his father. And this man comes to ask for mercy while his son is in this trying time of suffering. Yet it's worth noting that Jesus' own father would not extend mercy when his son was suffering. But notice with me the second part of what the father coming to Jesus says in verse 16. And I brought brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Now, I think this needs to cause, cause pause because we've been walking through the book of Matthew. So we've seen Jesus and his disciples interact with demons already. And if you remember, back in chapter 10, Jesus gave his disciples authority over the demons. In fact, it says this in chapter 10. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. And so the question is, if Jesus gave his disciples authority to cast out these demons, why could they not cast out this demon? What was so significant about this demon that they couldn't cast him out? Did Jesus somehow take the authority away from the disciples? Had the the ability been taken away? Was this demon just particularly strong? Why could this demon not be cast out when all of the other demons that they had approached could be cast out of people? I kind of wonder, could it be like an amateur magician? You ever seen an amateur magician? Or maybe a child that's trying to learn some tricks? Thank you, Nora. You haven't seen an amateur magician? I'm sorry. Remind me, I'll watch it on YouTube later. But an amateur musician who maybe had a you know, pull a rabbit out of his hat, abracadabra, and bridges and nothing comes out. Maybe he tries again, abracadabra, and, and, and nothing happens. I kind of imagine the disciples looking a little bit like amateur musicians. Where 
They say to this, to this boy, demon, be cast out of you. Or maybe they say, in the name of Jesus Christ, be cast out of you. Or maybe this boy is even passed between all nine of the other disciples. And all nine of them tried. In the name of Jesus, be cast out of you. And on and on throughout the nine. I wonder if they didn't look a little bit like amateur magicians unable to do what they really want to be able to do in that moment. So this is at least the perceived problem. This boy who has this demon. This father who is, of course, distraught. And disciples who are unable to do anything about it. And although Jesus does ultimately deal with this boy who has this demon, I want you to notice what we might call the real problem. Look in verse 17. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And this is an obvious moment of frustration for Jesus. Jesus is frustrated with his disciples. I think that his statement here is centralized on his disciples, but I think it extends to the whole crowd. I think it extends to the, what he says, the whole generation. And I think that as you read those questions, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? What do you sense in those questions? Jesus' own anxiousness to get back where he doesn't have these problems. Jesus looking forward to being with his Father, being with the Spirit, being back in that perfect relationship with himself, with the Trinity. Jesus is longing to get back to that place where there was never any frustration, never anything lacking in the Father or the Spirit that would ever want to cause him to leave. Even in the face of the transfiguration that had just occurred, you can imagine that would even provoke a longing to be back with the Father, to be back into that place again when he had experienced a transfiguration. But the second question that you see asked there is, how long am I to bear with you? The word bear could be uh, translated to endure. How long would Jesus have to endure this faithless and twisted generation? I wonder you all with kids or... Uh, you experience kids, you work with kids a little bit, um, you work at VBS for a couple of days or whatever it is, and you just say, how long am I going to have to deal with this? How long am I going to have to deal with this problem in this child? When are they going to stop acting this way? When are they going to finally get what I am trying to teach them? Maybe you've uttered those words to your children, you faithless and twisted generation. I don't know. But think with me again on this whole scene. You have this man who is vexed in his own soul over his son as any of us would be. You have the disciples who are totally clueless, don't understand why they're unable to cast this demon out of this boy. And their authorization being taken away, whatever. You have the son who cannot, you can just imagine him in that scene. He's maybe foaming at the mouth, throwing himself on the ground, being contorted, whatever the situation is. You have this sneering, vile demon that is inside of this boy, no doubt pleased as pink that the disciples are powerless against him. Yet with such clarity, Jesus is there and he utters four simple words that completely shatter each of these characters' thoughts in that moment that you see at the end of verse 17. Bring him to me. He says, bring him to me. Imagine the relief on the boy's father. Imagine the curiosity of the disciples as they look to see what Jesus does differently than what they tried to do. Imagine with me the the terror of the demon as he gets brought to the feet of God. 
But let me insert here that the way like this boy that you are going to be delivered from your own struggles and your own problems and addictions and wrong pursuits and bad habits, your sins, the way that those are going to change is if you are brought to Jesus. Like we talked about last week, beholding the glory of Christ, that is what is going to transform you. That is what is going to change you. If you want victory over the pornography addiction, start looking at and to Jesus. You want victory in your relationship? Start looking to Jesus. You want victory over your anger? Look to Christ. You want victory over your tongue, where you're slandering and you're gossiping? Look to Jesus. He is the only solution for this boy on this day. And he is the only solution for any of us who are experiencing sin and living in sin and choosing to sin. We must be brought to Jesus. So much could be said on that. But hold your finger in Matthew and turn over to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 9. Mark actually tells a whole lot more of the story. And so I want to get a little bit of what he has to say um, as well. We see actually a fuller conversation between the boy's father and Jesus. And this is how it goes. Mark chapter 9, beginning of verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father and the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So the problem that we've seen is this demon-possessed boy and the disciples' inability to cast it out. But the real problem was the disciples and that generation's lack of faith. But there's a solution to both. And here he is, Jesus. This extended conversation between uh, the boy's father and Jesus is really great in Mark 9, where Jesus says, all things are possible for one who believes. And what does the man respond? I believe. But help my unbelief. And if I were a betting man, for most of us who are here, we would fit right into that man's famous statement. We would say, I believe, but help my unbelief. That you struggle with believing. That you struggle with doubting and you wonder. And we fit right here with what this man says. We believe in our own personal lives that God is sovereign over us and He is working all things together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. But if we're honest, there are those so many moments throughout our week that we look up to heaven with hearts that don't fully understand and we say, Lord, I I do believe, but help my unbelief. Where we doubt, wondering if we're a Christian. Where we wonder why He won't just save our family member. Where we wonder if uh, if He actually loves us. Where we wonder if... It doesn't, we wonder why he doesn't heal in our family, physically heal a member of our family, or maybe even heal ourselves. And we say, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. And after this conversation, Jesus speaks to the demon, 
And he commands him to come out of the boy and never have to go into him again. And I wonder what that did for the faith and the trust and the belief of this man who came to Jesus saying, Lord, have mercy. But turn with me back to Matthew 17 again. I want to look at our text and finish there. But the disciples have come to Jesus privately, which makes sense because in some ways they were probably publicly humiliated because they were trying to pull the demon out, cast them out, and they weren't able to do it. But Matthew 17, beginning in verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So why couldn't they cast the demon out? Because of their little faith. This is the fourth time that Jesus explicitly, in reference to one of his disciples or all of his disciples, refers to them as those who have little faith. And the big question is, what exactly does Jesus mean when he says little faith versus great faith? Listen to these instances that speak of their little faith. But if God so clothes, this is from the Sermon on the Mount, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And he said to them in Matthew 8, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Matthew 14, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Matthew 16, But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? So in contrast to little faith, we've also seen the passages about the great faith. And really from people that we would not expect to have great faith. You remember the great faith of the Roman centurion in Matthew chapter 8. The great faith of those who brought the paralytic to Jesus. The faith of the two blind men who were, made, who were healed according to their faith. And the great faith of the Canaanite woman who came to Jesus asking for healing of her daughter from the demon. All throughout Matthew's gospel we've seen this contrast between great faith and Little faith. So what exactly makes the difference? How can you and I live lives that are filled with great faith? And I think it's this. The difference is this. Little faith is poor faith. Or faith that is of low quality. And great faith is a faith that is rich and full. Little faith is connected to doubt. When you doubt God, you're going to have an impoverished faith. In, in these passages I just read, the disciples were doubting that they would be provided clothing. They doubted they were going to be provided safety. They doubted they were going to be provided with food. But great faith is an unshakable trust in God to provide everything that you need in a situation. Faith, according to the author of Hebrews, is a substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Or said this way, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You see, the outside world, when they think about faith, they view it as this kind of like nebulous thing that Christians have or people of other faiths have. They just kind of have faith and they they feel like they can shoot it down because it's not like connected to science or something. But the Bible speaks of it completely differently. It refers to it as faith being connected to assurance and conviction. Assurance and conviction over things hoped for and for things not yet seen. But if you do have have this kind of faith, where it is of assurance and conviction, it will be a a faith that is rich. Like the kind of faith expressed in all of those Old Testament characters that follow Hebrews 11.1, where they had tremendous, rich faith. 
See, a lot of times we think of great faith and we assume that great faith means that it's big and vast and grand and so forth. But I want to direct you to the kind of faith expressed in Matthew 17 and verse 20 again. Look at the illustration that Jesus himself uses. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. You see, that the importance for Jesus is not necessarily that they had this monstrous faith. He doesn't say if you have faith the size of a watermelon or faith the size of a beach ball. He doesn't tell them that they need to have faith the size of a mountain in order to move a mountain or to do something great for the kingdom of God. He says, oh, you of little faith. And then he goes on to talk about one of the smallest seeds that they even had in that area at that time. And he says that a faith that size can move a mountain. It can do tremendous things for God's kingdom. The problem with their faith wasn't as much its size. It was its quality. Their faith was there, but it was an impoverished, weak faith. You see, the disciples were functioning in a manner where they had the formula down. That Jesus taught them how to cast out a demon. He authorized them to cast out the demon. And when they went to do it, and they couldn't do it, it was shocking to them. Because they would go out into ministry and they would do the work following the command of the Lord and follow it the way that he told them to do. But what they would learn in this moment is that the work required for the kingdom of God was not done by some sort of formula. It wasn't by following five simple steps. It was through great and rich faith. What was required for the disciples was the kind of faith that demonstrated belief and reliance on God alone. Some translations include a verse 21 here. Uh, in Matthew 17. Uh, Some of you, if you have a King James Version, there will be a verse 21. Others of you, you'll say, oh, it goes verse 20, and then goes right to 22. And that might throw you off a little bit, but don't let it throw you off. It's it's just a a textual variance. And it doesn't, uh, if you do have a verse 21, it doesn't throw things off at all as well, because if you look over in Mark chapter 9, the statement is there as well. But what does Jesus say in connection to how this demon could be thrown out through prayer and through fasting friends do you fast and pray fasting and prayer show a dependence on God they demonstrate that you are not relying and believing in yourself they demonstrate that you're relying and believing God this is so important this passage is so convicting even for me in my own approach to ministry and for ministry opportunities and chances to preach and teach the gospel or whatever. How often do I or how often do we approach ministry in a way that doesn't even require us to fast and pray because we know that we can pull it off on our own. We know that we don't need to fast and pray as we go into a situation because we can do it. We're not talking about the proverbial uh, mountain that Jesus has here. We're just talking about bringing somebody a meal or visiting somebody or helping somebody out financially or going and helping at a family fun night. We don't feel like we need great faith to do those things. But we can just kind of show up, do it, and get on with it. We don't even pray about it. But then God brings us to these certain places like these disciples were brought to on this day where there is a spiritual mountain that needs to be moved. And there is no way that we can pull off what needs to be pulled off. And it's humbling 
humbling to us yet again and shows us that it is God alone who does the work. It is God alone who receives the glory for the work that is done. How do we approach these ministry opportunities? How do you approach our worship services? Is it in faith? Is it with prayer? Is it with even fasting as you come and look to expect and to see God do great and mighty things? Listen to these other New Testament verses about faith. Faith is something that we stand firm in. 2 Corinthians 1, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Faith is something to pursue. 1 Timothy 6, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Faith is imperative to our own righteousness. Romans 14, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Faith is how we live as well. 2 Corinthians 5, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And the disciples were going to have to understand that this is how faith worked. They were going to have to understand that as they go through ministry, that faith was going to be imperative as they went day by day working for the kingdom of God. Specifically, when you see what Jesus says in verses 22 and 23, he says this, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. This is the second time that Jesus has said, I am going to die. And what were they going to need in that time? And what did they very obviously not have as they deny him and as they run away and as they betray him? They did not have faith to see. But they were going to need faith to see. Because as we go and you progress and you move into the book of Acts and Peter stands up in Acts chapter 2 and he starts to preach and he starts to quote Joel in the Old Testament and he's preaching out to all of his fellow Jews. There was great faith. And as you walk through the book of Acts, you see the disciples and how they're working and the great boldness that they had for the advancement in the kingdom of God. You see Paul as he goes into all of these other cities and towns and he's planting churches and there's real, true gospel growth. What was going to be required was apostles who were filled with steadfast, hard rock faith. But in closing, let me give you three applications. The first one is this. Going back to the beginning of the passage, We need to be brought to Jesus. If you have never trusted in Christ, you do not truly believe in Jesus, and you've never gained forgiveness through his work on the cross, that is where you need to begin. Trusting in Christ. This boy in this passage was undergoing spiritual and physical turmoil, and apart from Jesus, you will always undergo spiritual turmoil. Always. Consider what Jesus even says here at the end of this passage. This is the gospel message where he was delivered over to the men and he was killed and he rose up out of that grave. They did torture him. They did kill him. But through his death, you can find redemption and forgiveness of sins. And through the resurrection from the dead, you can find victory that he has gained for you. The second application is this. Like the disciples, why do we so easily miss that we need to minister by faith? We need to minister by faith. Are we cavalier in how we approach ministry opportunities? Do we purpose to minister by faith? Can it be said of us that we live by faith and not by sight? Even as a church, is that what describes us? They live by faith. It's incredible what God is doing in their church as a result of the great faith that he has brought there. And the third application is this. We need Jesus to help our unbelief. How badly do we personally, as a church, need to cry out to the Lord and say, we believe. We believe in in, in a salvific way, 
that you have come, that you have saved us, but help our unbelief where we doubt and where we struggle in our fragility and as weak creatures in desperate need of grace, we need to call out to him. But may the Lord do those things in our hearts. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word again. and We pray that you'll bring these things about within us. Lord, we pray that many, again, will be brought to Jesus and those who are struggling with certain sins now, bring them back to yourself. Draw them close. Help them to behold the glory yet again so that the sin falls away. (coughs) Lord, I pray that you'll make us a church of great faith. We pray, Lord, that you will help our unbelief. And we pray that you'll do it all in your name. Just take a moment now, a few minutes. Quietly reflect in your seat. Pray that God uh, will give you faith. If you haven't trusted Christ, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. Don't delay. And if you do know Jesus, but your tendency is to go at it in your own strength, you are missing the incredible blessing it is to walk by faith. But we all, I'm sure, need to cry out to Christ and say, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Take a moment. Ask God to work.